As we continue to work our way together through Luke's gospel, I ask that you turn once again to Luke, Luke's gospel, the fourth chapter. beginning with verse 31 to the end of the chapter. You will remember that we have recently seen the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, the beginning of his ministry, his rejection at Nazareth, how he passed through the midst of those who wanted to destroy him, and now we come to this day in Capernaum. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we come now to your word and we reverence your word. We recognize even at this moment that we do not reverence you nor your word as we should. We long as Christians to reverence you more. We look forward to that day in which in heaven and in the eternal state, there will be no more sin in our hearts. But even now, Father, we rejoice that we are completely accepted through Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And it fills our hearts with joy to know that we preach a risen Lord who saves sinners from our sins. Prepare our minds and hearts for coming to the table. Prepare us for life. Prepare us, each of us, for a good death. Should Jesus not come before our death? By hearing the word read and expounded week after week after week, work it down, way down deep within our souls. And Father, help us to live and, yes, to die as Christians, looking forward to the resurrection on the last day, which is sure and certain because Christ is risen from the dead. And for those in our midst today, Heavenly Father, who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we pray that you would open their hearts and draw them out of darkness into light and show them their need of Christ and deliver them from the kingdom of the evil one and transplant them into the kingdom of your own dear Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Taking your copy of God's Word, let's stand together. Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 31. This is the Word of God. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God." But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. 
And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. A day in Capernaum, an everyday day in the life of Jesus. And every day, day is an extraordinary day when Jesus is present. He went to Capernaum on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, which was a major Jewish trade center, and he went to the synagogue in order to teach the word of God. That synagogue, by the way, was built by the Jews for a centurion, and it has been excavated by archaeologists. You could actually go there, you could stand behind the reading desk, and you can imagine the scene with which this text opens this morning. So he speaks to those and the synagogue, and they are amazed at his authority. They are overwhelmed with the authority with which he brings the word of God. The kind of authority that Jesus claimed for himself would be pathological in any man who is not God incarnate. We must accept Jesus on his own terms or not at all. Jesus' authority is based on his person. And so he began teaching, and note this is a Sabbath day, and that will become very important as we work through Luke's gospel and see the conflict that comes between Jesus and Jewish leaders on other Sabbath days. But what happens, first of all, is this, the healing of the demon-possessed man. Now let me make a few comments on demon possession in the ancient world. Rarely is demon possession mentioned in the Old Testament, and even after the ascension of Christ, it is rarely mentioned in the book of Acts. When we speak of demon possession, this is to be distinguished from sickness. We are not simply saying this individual was sick. This individual is actually possessed by an evil spirit, by a demon. So the question that should arise for us is why in the Gospels do we find demon possession so frequently and Jesus casting out demons so often? And the obvious answer is there is an intensification of opposition to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as he came into the world in order to fulfill the redemptive plan of his Father. The casting out of demons by Jesus and the apostles is a sign that the kingdom has come. In the 11th chapter of Luke, verse 20, Jesus says, If I cast out demons by the finger of God, you know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so it is a sign that the kingdom has come when Jesus casts out demons. So there's this unclean spirit, the evil character of this spirit is stressed by speaking of him as unclean. He is unholy, 
He is totally the opposite of the Holy Son of God who will confront him. And there is a confrontation, a confrontation of God's own Son with the unclean forces of darkness. This is demon possession. It is not mental illness. It might lead to what we might call mental illness because of the physiological issues that are involved, but it is demon possession. We are told in 1 John 3 verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And here he reveals the purpose for his coming, his sonship, and his messiahship. Jesus' teaching, or perhaps has just concluded his teaching, and the demon-possessed man cried out with a loud voice. He screams, he screeches. It must have been a horrible thing as those in the synagogue hear this demon cry out through this man. What did he shout? Notice verses 33 and 34. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And so he begins with, Ha! Perhaps, just possibly, this word is an imperative from the verb a'o, which means to leave alone. If that is the case, then it should be translated something like, let us alone, leave us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? James tells us in his epistle, you will remember, that the demons believe and tremble. He knows that for the demons, destruction is on the horizon. And so he cries out. Geldenheis says it very beautifully. This is not an exclamation of surprise, but of terror and dismay. In the presence of the Holy One, the demon is convicted by the knowledge that for him and his kind, only destruction is waiting. He knows and recognizes Christ as the Holy One of God, and therefore cries out, shuddering with terror. Now note this well, because there's something for us here. The devils, the demons, the spirit world, the unchaste demons have a clear intellectual knowledge of who Jesus is. And there's a great warning for someone here this morning. Some of you also may have a similar knowledge. You have an intellectual knowledge. Perhaps you even say, I believe the Bible is the word of God. You have an intellectual knowledge of who Jesus is. You believe that he is God incarnate who came to redeem sinners. And yet your knowledge may be no better than that of the devil's. Someone here perhaps can know a great deal and you have an intellectual ascent. And yet you can sink into hell for all that. The question is, do you trust this Christ? Do you know this Christ? Have you believed on Christ? Do you know that he saves you from your sins? Do you have a knowledge that is not simply like that of the devils, they believe and tremble? But do you know him as your Lord and as your Savior? Does this knowledge produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life? 
So Jesus has power over demons. Now in verse 34, when he says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Earlier, we have an indication that there's one demon. Perhaps he's saying, what have you to do with the whole world of the demonic? But there's another possibility. He may be saying, to destroy me, you must destroy this man also. This would be why in verse 35, it is stressed that Jesus had everything under control and no harm came to the man. If that's the case, the stupid demon is attempting to challenge Jesus. Can you imagine that? The demon knows that he should be afraid because he knows that Jesus is, verse 34, the Holy One of God, the Son of the living God, who is completely and utterly holy. And Jesus, in verse 35, rebukes the demon. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. The verb actually could be translated, be muzzled, be muzzled. Shut your mouth. <laughs> there's no debate here. Uh, there are no incantations. There's no, there's no uh, lengthy attempt to somehow exercise the demon, and it takes hours or days or weeks or months. There's none of that. There's no debate. He simply rebukes the spirit, and the demon must leave this sad man. The demon must have raged to give up his host because the text tells us that the demon throws the man to the ground. Ripto is the verb. He casts him down. He throws the man to the ground. And the demon leaves, but the man is unharmed because Jesus is in complete control. Jesus has protected him, and he has showed his sovereign power. God's omnipotence is shown through Jesus, the Son of God. The saving reign of God has come. And the crowd is rightly amazed. In verse 36, they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Actually, in authority and power in the Greek New Testament are in the emphatic position. They are emphasizing and stressing that they find this unbelievable authority of Jesus to be so incredibly remarkable. The crowd had never seen anything like this before, and reports about this cannot be contained. And so in verse 37, reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. But this was only the beginning of a day in Capernaum, a very ordinary Sabbath day that became very extraordinary indeed because Jesus is there. And we move from this awful demonic scene to a very tender scene, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. We should always take our family needs to Jesus, and obviously that's what Simon, Peter, has done in this passage. Now, he's not mentioned Peter's call yet in Luke's gospel, but everyone evidently reading and uh, the one to whom this is addressed, Theophilus, would have known who Peter was. And so at this point, there's no need for an introduction. But Peter's mother-in-law was ill, and it's so beautifully and simply told. Puerita megalo, 
she has a high fever. Remember, Luke is a physician, and he's paying attention to the details. And Jesus stands over Peter's mother-in-law, a very interesting detail, and the text says he rebuked the fever. This is authority. Jesus just spoke the word, and there was instant healing. She rises up and serves others. Now that's it, isn't it? Jesus does so much for us that we want to rise and serve. We want to do something for others, and that's what Simon's mother-in-law does when Jesus instantaneously removes the great fever and heals her. I don't know if you've had a great fever. Most of us probably have. You don't feel like getting up when the fever is gone and beginning to serve people, not usually. Usually it takes days, perhaps even weeks, sometimes months, in some instances even years, but she is completely and utterly healed. C.E.B. Cranfield, New Testament scholar who wrote on Mark's gospel, speaks of Jesus' healing miracles as chinks in the curtain of the Son of God's hiddenness. It's as if the deity of Christ, his omnipotence, who he really is, shines through his humanity when he brings these healings in the Gospels. They're signs of the kingdom and pictures of the inner reality and blessedness of the kingdom and of the inner love and power and wonder of who Jesus is. Now remember, we've seen Jesus at his baptism equipped by the Holy Spirit for his messianic ministry. We've seen Jesus conquer the temptations of Satan in the wilderness. He showed his authority in Capernaum in his preaching and by simply walking through the midst of those who would cast him over the cliff. And now he has cast out demons and he heals the sick. Who is this? Jesus not only came to save the soul, but also the body. His miracles show who he is, but also point ahead to the restoration of all things at the end of time. When you as a believer read the miracles in the Gospels and you see Jesus casting out demons and healing the sick, when you as a believer read these things, you should fast forward your mind to what the Bible teaches about the end of time after the return of Jesus Christ in which the eternal state is established when we are promised He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Jesus coming, his casting out demons, his healing the sick, is a mere indicator that what is promised at the end is already a reality in his person and work that what is promised at the end has already begun for you, believer, right now. And now in this simple narrative, Luke returns to additional healing and to Jesus' authority over demons. And we see thirdly, the revelation of his sonship. There are public healings. In verses 40 and 41, now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them, and they healed them. The Sabbath is about to begin. They want to get all of their sick to Jesus before the Sabbath, or before the Sabbath ends, I should say. And demons also came out of many, crying, you are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. So the news has spread. As someone says, the street becomes a hospital. 
Have you ever seen Rembrandt's 100 Gilder print? It's based on Matthew 15, the six surrounding Jesus to be healed. There's a man on a pallet. There's another who is leaning on a cane. There's another one who's obviously blind. There's a mother there with her baby that obviously needs healing. And they're all pressing in on Jesus. Well, that's the scene that we have here in this gospel. No one came to Jesus and he had to say, you know, I can do ears, but I'm sorry, I can't do eyes. I'm a specialist. Jesus didn't have to do that. He lays his hands on the sick. Now, I find that to be something about which we should pause. It's a tender thing, don't you think? Jesus, the infinite, eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, incarnate, has come into this world. He's a real man. He's God, and he's man. The two natures inseparably united in his one person, and God, through Christ, lays his hands on the sick. Gestures of personal love, genuine warmth, infinite affection, caring. That's my Jesus. Perhaps it's also a sign of blessing. Do you remember those passages in the Old Testament when the patriarchs would lay their hands in order that, that their sons might be blessed? Perhaps also in the laying on of hands, we are to remember that he is the sin bearer and that there is something of the picture of the imputation of our sins to our Savior and of his righteousness to us. And perhaps he's identifying with people as the one who brings recreation. Perhaps all of that is intended by the laying on of Jesus' hands, and he heals them all. Once again, demons. Verse 41, demons also came out of many, crying, you are the Son of God. He rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. The demonic realm knows who Jesus is. They cry out that he is the Son of God. Jesus rebukes them and requires silence of them. After all, demons are not exactly desirable endorsements, are they? But there's something else going on here, and it is simply that Jesus would have his messianic ministry gradually unfold in order that ultimately we may see that his ministry is fulfilled in the cross and gloriously displayed in his resurrection from the dead. And so he muzzles, keeps quiet, and rebukes the demons. But notice again, they say that he is the Son of God. Verse 41, you are the Son of God. The demons know this. It may be that your professor in school says he's not. The demons know better. They don't deny it. They know that it's true. And Luke is concerned that you know it as well. Turn back to chapter 1. You remember in the birth narrative, when the angel from the heavenly throne came and greeted Mary in Luke 1.31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to him, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God." He is the second person of the Trinity, the incarnate God. He is the Messiah. And so once again, we have these demons. Now let me ask you this question. There is a demonic world, and the scriptures teach that the evil one is the God of this world, lowercase g, under the sovereignty of God. He is God's devil. I ask this question, whom do you recognize as your spiritual master? Few would say the devil, but it shows in our thoughts and the intents of the heart and our choices who is our spiritual master. Who is your spiritual master? In which kingdom do you belong? In the kingdom of the evil one or in the kingdom of God's own son? Which leads us to see fourthly, that Jesus preaches the kingdom of God, which is good news. Jesus preaches the kingdom. Look again at verses 42 and following. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And so they want to keep Jesus, understandably, but he will not stay in one place because his mission requires that he go to other towns and preach the kingdom of God, which is good news. What is meant in the Gospels by the kingdom of God? Let me help you to answer that question by giving to you a series of quick thoughts. It will help you as you work your way through the Gospels and through Luke to understand what is meant by the kingdom of God. Kingdom is not so much a realm as it is a rule. The spatial idea recedes. It is the saving rule of God, emphasizing the activity of the king. The kingdom has come in Jesus. It already exists. It is in the midst of the people of God. The hope of the Old Testament is a present reality. Again, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, you know that the kingdom has come upon you. It is a present reality. But the kingdom is still to come. And so we pray the Lord's Prayer every Lord's Day. Thy kingdom come. Why can we say the kingdom has come and the kingdom is yet to come? Because Jesus has come, and he is still to come. The kingdom is inseparable from Christ himself, and the kingdom is the presence now of the future. It is the presence of what is promised in the future, which is why Paul can say, if anyone is in Christ, you belong to a new creation. The kingdom of God is a gift We are said in the Gospels to receive the kingdom, inherit the kingdom, enter the kingdom, but we are never said to earn it, to work it up, nor are we called to bring it in. It's a gift. 
What are the signs of the kingdom in the Gospels? The signs of the kingdom that it has come in the Gospels are casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead, the preaching of the Gospel, and the forgiveness of sins. What are the demands of the kingdom? Cosmic restoration, repentance and faith, total commitment. The kingdom is the beginning of the total renewal of the universe and where the saving rule of the king breaks into our lives. No, where the saving rule of the king breaks into your life, your life must change, and so must mine. Where the kingdom is, we acknowledge a new king. Where the kingdom is, we acknowledge a new allegiance. Since the kingdom has come and confronts us in Jesus, your life and mine can never be the same. We must believe. We must repent because Jesus has come and the age to come has begun. And that calls us to a new approach to life. 1 John 2.8, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The fact that we do not bring in the kingdom but that it is God's gift really turns on its head much that Christians have assumed about our role in culture, the church's role institutionally. Stanley Hauerwas in an article, Preaching as Though We Had Enemies, makes this comment. Christians in modernity thought their task was to make the gospel intelligible to the world rather than to help the world understand why it could not be intelligible without the gospel. So that's the kingdom. You begin to understand what it means. So the question is this. If the kingdom has arrived in the person of Christ, who is your spiritual master? Maybe you've set up your own micro-kingdom, your own heart's lusts, business, family, plans instead of God's kingdom. Do you see your need for Jesus to deliver you from tyrannies? Well, what a day for Capernaum. And what a day for us to learn about Christ and his kingdom. So it's a very simple text, don't you agree? A very beautiful text because it's all about Jesus. But the great question that should face us when we read this and we read through Luke's gospel as we see him casting out demons and healing the sick, is simply the question, who is this? Who is it that can do these things? Who is it that came into the world to achieve and accomplish this? And what we have seen in the text is he is authoritative and he is powerful. Authority is used in verses 32 and 36. Rebuke is used three times in verses 35, 36, and 39. He's authoritative and powerful. His authority is absolute, even extending over cosmic forces and demonic realms. His authority can free bound people, even people bound by demons, which means he certainly can set you at liberty. Jesus heals the sick. Jesus is tender and compassionate and shows his love by touching sick people. Jesus is the Lord of life. His miracles were acted sermons declaring that in him the kingdom has come. God's saving rule has arrived. 
Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. I say, looking at this text, Jesus is utterly amazing. Don't you? You're so used to reading these texts, reading through them in your quiet time in the morning. Have you forgotten what power, what authority, what the kingdom means, who Jesus is, the greatness? Have you forgotten how amazing it is that God, the second person of the Trinity, would become incarnate and touch sick people and raise people from the dead and cast out demons and go to a cross and shed his blood and be raised on the third day, ascend on high, and there as your high priest present the efficacy of his atonement for you forever? Have you forgotten how amazing Jesus is? Is there someone here this morning we've read about Jesus and you're lost You don't care about Jesus. This means nothing to you. J.C. Ryle said this, The miracles in the Gospels are intended to fasten in our minds the great truth that Christ is the appointed healer of every evil which sin has brought into the world. Christ is the universal physician to whom all the children of Adam must repair if they would be made whole. If you would be made whole, It is to this Jesus that you must come in faith. And Christian, I simply ask you, will we live in the wonder and amazement of who Christ is and in the wonder and amazement of these realities? Now, this is pastoral counsel that really you would be wise to hear. No charge. You get together with your friends, your Christian friends. What do you do? I've got a problem. And you talk through your problem. You should do that, by the way. We should help bear one another's burdens. We really need to do that. Some of you are so into your problems that your problems are all you ever see. Some of you are so deeply enmeshed in the fallenness of this world that you have forgotten that you are already a citizen of the kingdom that is coming, that the future has broken into time, that you already belong to a new creation. You're forgetting these things. You're not applying them to your life. Well, apply them. And here's one way you can do it. Get that Christian friend and say to that Christian friend, Let's have coffee next time. We'll sit for 40 minutes over coffee, and we will not talk about one problem. The entire time, we're going to talk about how amazing Jesus is. So you sit with that friend over coffee, and you begin to do it. You know what you do? You drift into your problems. It's really hard to focus on Jesus for 40 minutes and just to talk about his glory But I'm challenging you to begin to set a life pattern of thinking upon the amazing glory of the Son of God. So you try it again with your friend. Let's try again. And you say, do you remember he raised Lazarus from the dead? Oh, what amazing power. Do you know what that means? It means means that, that Jesus 
would be raised from the dead. It means that I spiritually am raised from the dead. It means that in the last day, I'm going to be raised from the dead. Imagine what the eternal state will be when we gather around the throne and worship the Lamb, singing, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And you talk one with another, not about problems. Do that next time. You talk only about the glory, the wonder, the greatness, the majesty, the amazing love and mercy and condescending grace of Jesus Christ, your Lord. Will you do that? I don't hear much. (laughs) For some of you, that's the pastoral counsel you need. Think on self less. Think on him more. And you know, we should be amazed when we read these passages. The gospel message is doxology before it is proclamation. And I have no hope that the church will proclaim Christ until it is amazed by Christ. And I have no hope that we will become the Christians that God wants us to be until we are amazed by Christ. God's own son came into the world. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He cast out demons, went to the cross, rose from the dead. I'm amazed. Are you? And God's people said, amen.